0: Well, all two will say good morning. I'm Brian Agabino, the lead pastor. It's great to be with you today. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we had the joy our family did of being on sabbatical for the month of July and had an amazing time doing all the things. Uh, some of it was restful, some of it was Restorative and some of it was just uh, renewing just my heart and passion for what God has called me to and so I'm excited to go through this series I will humbly confess to you that I put pressure on myself To come back after being gone for six weeks to do something incredible and so I'm just saying that out loud to say What's going to happen in the next 30 minutes has nothing to do with me It really is the spirit that's going to move us and lead us into unity And uh, I have a true temptation to want to prove myself to you guys, and um, the Lord exposed some of that while I was on sabbatical. I also am just a tiny bit sad because my daughter went back to college today, so I gave her a big hug and a kiss as she drove away into the sunset, into the storms in Warrensburg. They're unpacking the car right now in thunderstorms, so I'm a little happy to be here with you and not be, (laughs) be doing that, so... Uh, I love this place. I really do. I love you guys, and I'm thankful to be on, have had a, a week, a month to, to rest, and I'm really excited about this series. Um, I'm going to give you guys three words to think about in our mission, but before we do, let me read our passage for us. I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 6, and really focusing just on one verse Three words that I want you to zone in on with me, if you will. Uh, Paul says, eager to maintain the unity. And the words for me are eager, maintain, and unity that I want you to hear, be thinking about today. So let me read our passage and then we'll pray. Paul wrote this I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. To which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you find unity complicated? There is a famous storyteller, Aesop's Tales, you may have heard of them. He is from 600 B.C. and he penned lots of stories. One of them was called The Bull and the Lion. It is this, a lion had been watching three bulls feeding in an open field. He tried to attack them several times, but the bulls had kept together and helped each other to drive him off. The lion had little hope of eating them, for he was no match for three strong bulls with their sharp horns and hooves. But he could not keep away from that field, for it is hard to resist watching a good meal, even when there is little chance of getting it. Then one day, the bulls had a quarrel, and when the hungry lion came to look at them and lick his chops as he was accustomed to, he found them in separate corners of the field as far away from one another as he could get as they could get it was now an easy matter for the lion to attack them one at a time and this he proceeded to do with gr- the greatest satisfaction and relish the moral of this story is division leads to destruction while unity Provides strength. Jesus understood the power of unity. Maybe you have heard that one of the most famous prayers of Jesus happened very shortly before he went to the cross. It's recorded in John chapter 17 and the apostle tells us that near the end of that prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus specifically prays for those who aren't with him. He prays for people who will be the future followers ineffectively praying for us. And the one thing that he prays for is unity. The Apostle Paul, to almost every church he wrote, he called them to, challenged them to, asked them to consider to pursue unity and live in unity. As DJ mentioned, this August we're going to take three weeks to revisit our mission. A family of grace... Believing the gospel, becoming the gospel. Three components, if you will, large pillars to who we are, what it means to be the Summit Church. And each week this year, I'd like to give us a word to really think about, ponder, reflect on, possibly for the year, if you will, that would help us. And after reflection and thought, and I thought about what does it mean to be a family of grace as we move forward in this season, the word for us is unity. What does it look like for us to live in unity? So four questions I'm going to engage on this morning. Why do we need biblical unity? What is biblical unity? What isn't biblical unity? And then how do we pursue it? How do we pursue it? Why do we need it? What is it? What isn't it? And how do we pursue it? So why do we need biblical unity? To say it boldly from the top here, The world will not believe in the Savior Jesus Christ unless it sees a diverse group of people in an astounding love for one another because of him. At the end of Jesus' life, as we mentioned, the Apostle John records that prayer of Jesus when Jesus thought about you and I, and he didn't pray about the issue of modernism, he didn't pray about the issue of postmodernism, about the issue of more therapeutic deism, about secularism, about humanism, about atheism, about individualism, about materialism, or about universalism. He didn't pray about any of the isms. <laughs> Jesus wasn't concerned about the outside in, he was concerned about the inside out. And so he prayed for unity. Can I give you something just to ponder this week? Maybe something that I might be doing a little bit more regularly in my sermons Something to chew on. An idea perhaps that I don't have time to unpack or reflect on. Maybe today when you're at lunch or with your family, you think about this. Why do you think that Jesus never spoke about the craziness of Rome? Rome was one of the most corrupt cultures in all of history ever to exist. And he never addresses those cultural issues. Why? Why here at the end is he praying for the unity of those who will follow after him? In John chapter 17, just to hear what he prays, in verse 21 he's praying for us and he prays that they, that we, May all be one, he's praying to his father, just as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. He then continues to pray, I pray that I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me that the call, that the challenge, that the invitation for biblical unity is actually evangelistic. That there's something about the way we will love each other that will lead to, that will impact, that will show the world the beauty of what Jesus has done. The gospel brings people together in a way that the world could never experience. And if the gospel doesn't have the power to bring unity amongst us, then we have no gospel to offer the world. Quick question here. Do you think that everyone in this room has the same views as you? Well, let me assure you, there isn't one person, I would venture to say, in this room that thinks exactly the way you do about politics, race, class, gender, finances, theology. But what Jesus has unifies us. And the only the power, it's only the power of the gospel that can actually bring unity. Unity is evangelistic because it creates something the world can't create. So what is biblical unity? What is biblical unity? Well, back to Ephesians Simply put, unity is a state of oneness or harmony. It's a state of oneness or harmony. And in verse 3 of Ephesians, Paul says, he asks, he commands the church in Ephesus to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. When you trust Christ, you're made a part of a family. He doesn't unify us because of our views on any one particular issue He doesn't unify us because of we go to church or because we do something. He takes people from every side of every issue and makes them a part of his blood family and puts his blood in them. It's something that can't be gained. It can't be attained. As Paul says here, it's something we maintain. It's not something we gain or attain, Unity is something that is maintained. In fairness, for me, and I think for all of us, sometimes it really is a concept that's hard to grasp. Some of this has to do with language. Aaron talked about this about a year ago, and I'd like to revisit it just a little bit if I can. English is a noun-based language. We look at the characteristics of something to determine what it is. So, you may be wondering why I have two apples up here. When we take apples and we say, what makes this an apple and what makes this an apple, we usually use characteristics to say, this is what makes it an apple. It's red, it has a stem, it has seeds, it has a skin. If you eat it, there's fiber, it's good for your body. And we say all these things that help us understand and determine that's an apple. And when we think about Christianity and Christian unity, we think about it the same way. We're unified because of right beliefs or right practices. We're Christians because we believe in the virgin birth. We're Christians because we go to church. What's radical about biblical unity is that it's not built on those characteristics. Biblical unity comes from a relationship. We're unified because of who is at the center, because who we are related to. It's about the person to whom we worship, to whose allegiance we are directed towards. It's why biblical Christianity is so unique. Christianity crosses racial barriers, class barriers, political barriers, every barrier you can possibly name. It's not about what we know, or what we do, but who we know, who we love, who we are in relationship to. The gospel changes our identity so we can relate to Christians on every scale. And this means that you, we, who believe, love, trust Jesus, can relate to each other. And it should make us ask Is there someone in this room who's in relationship with Jesus that I cannot or will not or don't know how to relate to? I mean, let's get super practical here if we can. When we struggle to maintain a relationship with people we disagree with, we might be basing our security with Jesus on what we do and what we believe and that's why we can be threatened by someone who believes and behaves differently biblical unity is based on Jesus what we have been brought into not because of what we do or what we believe should be lead us to a posture of presence a posture of listening a posture of openness in some ways we should tend to the signs of what is really going on with other people. I read something I, I really liked last week. It said when we're engaging with others in the church, we should not be quick to read people and disagree with them and identify them as not safe. We should give people at least four tries. One more than three strikes and you're out because it's a one more step of grace. I like that. It's a sign of humility. Now, hear me now. I'm, I'm going to talk about what it's not, and, I, and, and we'll get there in a second. I, I trust people who have strong convictions. I want to have strong convictions about things. And also people in those strong convictions that are discerning, And shifting and growing with others in the same way. Church, we've lost the ability to listen to each other. And perhaps it's because we've lost this perspective on what it means to be united with Christ. Now before we talk about how and what it looks like to pursue unity, can I... address three things that biblical unity isn't the first is this biblical unity it's not a virtue in and of itself unity can be bad there is a thing of bad unity that's why we can't make it a virtue in and of itself there's lots of examples of this to use scripture the tower of babel was an example of bad unity Pilate and Herod were unified, the Bible tells us. There can be bad unity, so to pursue unity at all costs defies the nature of biblical unity. Unity, even in and of itself, is not the goal. The second thing biblical unity is not is it's not uniformity. Though we are all one in Christ, God doesn't erase our unique gifts, our abilities, our personal preferences, or other distinctions like our age or our gender. He also doesn't erase our ethnicity or our cultural heritages. In fact, it's in those places that the beauty of the gospel gets to be experienced in different and unique ways. There should be something inherent in the heart of someone who loves Jesus that opens them to others who are in Christ. And the third thing biblical unity is not, is it's not absence of conflict or struggle. The very call to unity implies that there is disunity. Adversity should pull the body of Christ together because of our relationship that is what is the centerpiece of our unity. George Verver wrote a book, and I love this language. He called it messiology. Messiology. I love that. I would call a summit to be a church who does messiology well. Why do you think Jesus prayed for unity? Why do you think Paul had to call the Ephesian church, the Corinthian church, the Colossian church to unity? Because disunity comes to us naturally. What I found in my journey as a pastor is that Christians, myself included, and the Spirit has grown me so much in this, are nervous when there's conflict. We get nervous when there's conflict because it can lead to disunity. But the reality is that healthy conflict can also lead to unity. I found that when people draw lines in the sand sometimes. It it can often be to create unity, unity around something as opposed to someone. You see, when I know that I'm a mess, it leads me to a place of listening and learning. What the Ephesians were called to And what the church helps us see here is really that creating unity is God's responsibility. It's maintaining it that is ours. So if because of Christ we are brought into a family... It invites us to have hard conversations, to wrestle with each other, to talk about hard things, to talk about theology. But if in the midst of all of those things we find ourselves being separated and being angry with each other and not wanting to be a part of the church anymore, then then perhaps we're not unified around the one that we should be unified to. So how do we do that? How do we pursue biblical unity? Well, it's not easy. It's not easy. But every Christian has been given all that is required to live in unity with God's people. And what I'll suggest this morning is an outward practice that we can apply and an inward practice. An outward practice and an inward practice. Paul tells us what the outward practice is. In verse 2 of Ephesians, he says, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love." That there's an outward work that we would apply, that we would, with each other, that we would show humility, that we would show gentleness, that we would show patience, that we would bear with one another in love. He, he contrasts it with something later on in the passage in verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such what is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He, he basically is saying put away fighting words and put on bonding words. Put, put away the fighting words where, where we're putting each other down, where we're putting each other in a place where we think we're better than they are. And he says, put on bonding words. Patience, grace, peace, kindness, humility. What Paul is telling the church is he's saying, here's how the world is going to know you follow Jesus. It's the graces that the church will be known for. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Is that what people recognize in you? Augustine has a great quote. He says, ask what you will, give what you ask. Oftentimes we're asking God, God, forgive me, be patient with me, help me, be kind to me. And I love the implication of what he's saying. You ask God for whatever it is that you need. And then what oftentimes will happen when we're asking God to help us experience that is when we're called to give that to somebody else. So ask what you will, give what you ask. The second thing If that's the outward work, there's an inward work. One of the greatest enemies, if not the greatest enemy, to biblical unity is self-righteousness. Thinking you have it all together, that you know all that there is to know, and if everyone else thought exactly the way you thought, then the world would just be a perfect place. Battling self-righteousness is not easy. In fact, self-righteousness is one of those things that we need to learn, that we need to get in the practice, the habit, the experience of repenting on, on a regular basis in our relationship with Jesus. On sabbatical, one of the projects that I worked on that was a little bit frustrating for me was on our patio in the backyard. We had some furniture that was on there for years and years without any kind of, uh, on the legs, there wasn't anything at the bottom. So, you know, they were there forever, and they created these massive rust stains on the patio. And so one of my projects, what's been on my list for about five years, was to clean the rust off. That's what happens on sabbatical. You do things that have been on your list for a long, long time. So I tried, I watched... I can't even tell you how many YouTube videos I watched about how to clean rust off of concrete and how many different bottles of chemicals I now have in my garage because of everybody who promised me that this would get the rust off your concrete. I finally bought muriatic acid, which is the most uh, corrosive chemical you can buy on the market from Home Depot that's legal. They're still there. (laughs) It takes multiple applications to work out rust and concrete. How do we work out self-righteousness in our lives? My friends, it takes multiple applications of the love of Jesus in your heart. We have to press in over and over and over to how deeply loved we are by him. So simple, but yet we have to press into the things that make us feel we're justified in our lives. If I could just offer maybe three very practical ways to be pressed in, to have Jesus' love pressed into you, three things that we can practice. The first is this, we can share our resources. You know, one of the easiest commands of Scripture is to give. But yet one of the hardest. It pushes us to live in humility when we give of ourselves to others. Another way to combat our self-righteousness is to share our burdens and our sins with other people. How hard is it for you to ask for help? I'm seriously asking you that question this morning. Because most likely, how difficult it is for us to ask for help is a great sign of how self-righteous we might be. an even more complicated and difficult thing. The Bible invites us as those who are unified in Christ to share our sins and confess our sins to one another. Self-righteousness wants us to protect our hearts, to make us think, well, I'm I'm really better than I am, and I want other people to think that I'm better than I am. Hmm? Ask you to consider maybe Finding another believer, someone that you've known for a while, someone who knows the love of Jesus, and share with them your struggle. Another way to battle self-righteousness is to share the truth in love. We were watching a show recently, and one of the characters on the show starts asking, am I a mess? You know, we need people around us who know they are a mess so that they, with grace and humility, can look at us and say, you're a mess. We oftentimes use this phrase as a threat sometimes, I think, as a church. We we really focus on the truth part. But I think when Paul in Ephesians calls us to share the truth in love, the emphasis was on the love part, in love because of love, because you know how broken you are, because you've taken the plank out of your own eye, because you deeply care about the people that are around you and a part of the family of Jesus, you would, in love, open up to others their struggles. Do you believe that the Father loves you as much as he loves the Son? I mean, really believe it. That will change the way you relate to others. The more we take in how loved we are, the more we will live in unity. Self righteousness has to come out, it has to be something we realize is going to ever be a temptation. I had a great sabbatical in July, and one of the highlights for me of sabbatical was all the projects I finished. I checked off organizing the garage. I checked off fixing the deck. I checked off restoring my arcade machine. I checked off power washing the patio. I checked off staining the patio. I checked off cleaning out the freezer, and the list could go on and on and on. And I checked them off, and I checked them off, and I checked them off. And my friends, part of the struggle for unity and part of our struggle for becoming like Christ in this life is it's never checked off. We're always going to see self-righteousness in our lives. Do you see it in yours? Are you going to Jesus and asking him to show you how loved you are? You see, in our lives, there is one thing that we can check off. (laughs) There's one thing we can check off the list because on the cross, the afternoon Jesus died, he uttered three words and he said, It is finished. And the payment for our sins was done. And the love of God was so bold and so beautiful and so high and so long and so wide and so deep that it reached to the darkest crevices of your soul and mine so that we might become sons and daughters of the creator of the world. And we never have to try and gain his love or attain his love ever again. Has that penetrated your heart and soul, church? Is the love of Jesus so profound to you that you cannot help but wake up in the mornings and reflect on and give thanks and praise to the one who has given himself to you and now calls you just as he sees Jesus, his son and his daughter? Can you let that rest on your heart today? The Bible calls us to unity, to be a family of grace. This week, I would call you, challenge you, invite you to confess your self-righteousness to Jesus. But in that confession, also have faith to put your faith in how deeply loved you are, how deeply loved you are. You are in Christ because of what he's done. And may that press into all of our hearts so that we truly may live in unity, that we may be a family of grace that maintains the unity that Jesus has called us to. Let's pray. Almighty awesome God, I would imagine that there are people in this room who don't like each other. <laughs> Father, that there are people who are hard for us to love. But would you, would you show us how messy we are? and how seemingly hard each one of us is to love, but that you saw beyond all of that and sent your Son for us because you just love us. It's not because of anything we've done. It's not because of anything we've accomplished. You just, you just love us. And may, may that just rest on our souls this week. May we press into your love for us Would you just expose our self-righteousness? Show us how we try to attain and gain worth in and of ourselves, but that it will never give us what we need. So, Father, may we become a people who repent and believe, who confess our struggle, but believe in who we are in Jesus. And as we do that over and over and over and over and over and over as we walk in that maybe we become a people of unity a people who are gracious a people who are patient, a people who bear one another, bear with one another who are forbearing Father we ask this this crazy thing, something we could never produce on our own strength would you make us this people unified May we be a church that displays to the world a love, a great love, a grand love, a hopeful love, a love that made the angels so curious when it was displayed. We pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen.